welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast, where we explore how to center our lives and our leadership in the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ. In the midst of the disruptive cultural shockwaves of the 21st century. Join us as we learn to take the love of God seriously as the force that holds all of us and everything together. If you're loving this podcast, we invite you to go deeper and partner with us in our work by joining the Gravity Commons, our online community of practice for connecting and learning together. As a member of the Gravity Commons, you get access to live podcast recordings with upcoming guests, as well as other opportunities to connect and learn together with us in real time. Including learning labs, member meetups, discussion boards, online courses, and our practitioner podcast. Go to gravityleadership.com slash commons to find out more. See you in the commons. Here we are, right where you left us, the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Christy Penley is here. Hey, hey. And Ben Sternke also is yes. breathing. Mm-hmm. Yes. And here, present. You've got and some... Matt, and Matt Tebby. Yep. Don't here forget I am. to introduce yourself, Matt. Yes. Your, your presence is mm-hmm. a present, Ben. Oh, thank you yeah. to all of us. That's 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 actually some good news that uh, that I, I am leaning into uh, mm-hmm. as as of late. Uh, so anyway, we don't need to get into that. But I do have that. a favor to ask you. Okay. <laughs> um, would you do something I can do me? for you? <laughs> something I, something I can do to justify my existence to you, Matt? <laughs> yes. Every day. I'm, um, so glad I'm good at things. Now people we were just, like me. We were just chatting before we hit play that, uh, Ben, your mom's in town. Because yeah, uh, we're going on a retreat town. this week. We are. She's she's in town to watch. Our, our teenage girls are probably old enough that they could hold down the fort uh, mm-hmm. uh, without, you know, without much, uh, you know, maybe an adult checks in on them every once in a while. But the dog, the dog is the <laughs> entity that needs babysitting. So, <laughs> so she's here to watch the dog. Oh, a little boy. To watch our girls. So, yeah. Yeah. But yeah. We're going, we're going to Nashville, uh, on Wednesday. I love uh, Nashville. Yeah. It's I, a good city. We, we have gotten, so I've gotten two, um, if y'all have Nashville recommendations, you can email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. I don't know how much time we're going to have to check everything out, but we've got two recommendations. Well, I got two recommendations. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got we, we were told to check out Martin's yeah, barbecue. barbecue by a local pastor here. Uh, and then um, I guess there is a Third Man Records there, which is Jack White's oh. uh, record oh boy. company. Um, his vinyl kind of pressing uh, whole thing. So Christy. anyway. I'm here. I'm here. Chrissy, don't ask Ben. Don't ask Ben about Jack White's new album. Oh, I thought you were like, you guys, all yeah. of our listeners need to know we've been having like internet issues. Uh-huh. And so you said Chrissy, and I'm like, no, no, I see no, you. No, I'm no. still here. I'm, I'm not still bad. here. I didn't get kicked <laughs> off the interview. <laughs> no, um, you were just yeah. saying don't ask because maybe you'll don't go ask. on and on. Are you excited about this? He, it's, he's, it is uh, one of the most interesting, <laughs> Matt. Uh, you you asked for this. Uh, it's one of the most interesting <laughs> and surprising uh, albums that I've heard in a long time. I mean, it's you know it's Jack White, so I don't know if you know that White Stripes, you know that kind of thing. But anyway, it's just a fantastic album. It's like surprising. I laughed out loud several times, like oh. in the middle of the album. I'm like, what? What are we doing now? And it was, wow. uh, but it was so it's so groovy and catchy. Mm. Anyway, 
Well, okay, anyway, well, that's a free endorsement there. for Jack White's new album. Go, there you go. Go, go check right. it out, everybody. And um, Martin's Barbecue, which Martin's, is I haven't Tennessee, tried that one yet, but. Is Tennessee Barbecue mustard-based? What, what's the, you know, how, like, they're all different, right? They are, like ketchup-based, mustard-based, I don't know. Well, you'll have yeah. to come back and tell me. Yeah, well, I, I, let's see if we can find, I don't know how close it is to where we're going to be. We'll see. Yeah. I, I'll check it out. If Drink I'll, some sweet tea while you're there. Oh, Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, that goes uh, that goes well. straight to my hips, Christy. I can't drink that much sugar. <laughs> you know, it's kind of Memphis is known for barbecue. Nashville is known for their hot chicken. Oh, uh, yeah, we should probably get right? some hot chicken while we're down there too. That's yeah. true. Hot chicken. Nashville I hot I, chicken. It's not lost on me that in the intro to an interview we mm. did, uh, Ben, you told somebody to go listen to something else. That's true. I mean. <laughs> Well, you're you're all, they're already here. Like I know, you know what the, I mean. Like they, well, they at maybe. least had enough interest to click on we this. We hope interview. they're still here. I guess several, that's what we're saying. several and several and <laughs> upon several of people uh-huh. may have turned us off already. Yeah. And well, hopefully they just paused and then they came back and now now they're back and they're like, I'm sure glad that he recommended that album and now I can finish listening to this interview. There we go. Idolette McVicker. Yeah, we're talking to Idolette McVicker today. She wrote a book. Um, uh, recovering racists, and she's from South Africa, and now she lives in Canada, and she's talking about her waking up to white supremacy and apartheid, mm-hmm. yeah. and um, other, um, yeah, ra- like yeah. her own racism. Yeah. She's got some powerful yeah. lines in this interview and powerful stories in this book, and I yeah. can't wait for you to hear it. Yeah, yeah, it's really good, really good uh, perspective and reflections from someone who had to learn how to see their own um, participation and complicity, even though yeah. they wouldn't have chosen it, right? They weren't like personally uh, hateful, mm-hmm. um, but had to learn how to see all the subtle ways that uh, that, that she participated in uh, racist structures and um, and just the work that it takes to undo that um, in our own imaginations, uh, but also in our with our bodies. And so she's uh, yeah. yeah. She's she's done a lot of good work. It's uh, helpful. It was helpful for me to hear from her. Yeah, I think it's interesting to me because I think what comes out for me mm. is that there needs to be continued awareness. Yeah. I am I am blind, yeah. um, and I yeah. need people. Yeah. I need books. I need interviews like this to help continue to open my eyes. So yeah. that's what that's what happened here. Yeah, Christy, yeah. you named something. I think that. We, that maybe I missed in my five things I've learned. I can't remember. Um, mm-hmm. But this, like your your settled conviction that of course you're going to be seeing and learning things that a day, a week, a month ago, you had no idea you didn't know, yeah. and you had no idea maybe even existed. Um, mm-hmm. That's a fundamental shift for me. Mm-hmm. I don't think 20 years ago... I had the kind of curiosity and openness and receptivity and humility to A, realize that was the case, and B, actually um, look forward to it. (laughs) Like, you know? (laughs) Anyway. Yeah. Anyway. Well, should we get into into a little idolette? Yeah, let's do it. A little idolette for you on this Tuesday morning. Well, whenever you're listening. But uh, but yeah, enjoy the interview. Yeah.
Adelette McVicker joins us on the Gravity Leadership Podcast today. She is the founder and president of She Loves Media, uh, online a Christian forum for women that includes She Loves Magazine and the Dangerous Women membership community. We need to ask about that. That sounds awesome. Uh, she's a popular speaker and retreat leader internationally. She wrote the She Loves Manifesto, Let Us Be Women Who Love, which has been used by women's ministries around the world and in Sarah Bessie's book, Jesus Feminist. She lives in Surrey, British Columbia, and she just wrote a book, Recovering Racists, Dismantling White Supremacy, and Reclaiming Our Humanity. Idolette, welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Yes, it's great for you. It's, it's really an honor to have you here. Um, tell us about the dangerous... Wait, it's just Ben and I today. No, Christy. Can you tell us about the Dangerous Women membership community? Or is this for like women's only? Like, like, of course. Can we know about this? Course. What is that? Um, yeah, we're just um, a group of women who want to be dangerous to the status quo. Um, we leaned in, um, a friend and I, Kelly Nicondera, listened to Walter Brueggemann. It's a, like our favorite sermon on Isaiah. And he talks and as he sweeps through Isaiah, he says, God needs dangerous people. And I looked at her and I was like, God needs dangerous women. And, you know, we know the idea of God not really needing anybody, but, um, just participants that we get to participate and, um, we get to join God and what God's already doing, right? And so um, it's a group of women who who are just satisfied with just, um, you know, status quo that oppresses or that um, diminishes or that silences anybody. Yeah, so it's just a group of, of people with hearts who want to lean deep into their faith, you know, and walk with love. Yeah. So it sounds like this book then— Recovering racists is is like a a an expression of of what a dangerous woman in the prophetic Brueggemann tradition would be doing. Yes, and so um, you, people may be noticing that uh, you live in Canada, but your accent perhaps isn't Canadian uh, purely or or uh, primarily. You grew up in South Africa as a white person. And for those of us in North America or Europe, um, what are some of the unique ways that um, race and white supremacy shaped your upbringing in your country? Right. This is really the book, right? Um, yeah, so I was born and raised in South Africa, and I've spent the first 23 years of my life in South Africa and was profoundly shaped by the context and so if we look to history, um, you would know that that was exactly the period um, that apartheid uh, reigned in South Africa. And it was a system of law, systems of laws and um, ideas and all the ways that you could oppress people and separate people based on the color of our skin with white people as the beneficiaries of that, right? And so I really was the child that was meant to be to be to benefit from the system, to be privileged by it, to to be set up and to be protected really by apartheid, I guess, you know, because yeah. I really yeah. think it was a fear based system, um, and so I was born on the white side of the hospital. Um, when I was born, my identity card had a, a racial designation; it was stamped white, mm -hmm. and when I went to the beach, it was I went to a beach that was designated only for white people. 
And and I just want to, if if you're listeners who are listening in and for who this is hard to to hear, just just I want to be mindful that this is, you know, this is a white woman. I am a white woman talking about race, so I know that this can be hard for some people to listen to. And so I really lean in to other white people. That's where the book is positioned. It's to white people, but I hope it's for a different world. So I just want to be yeah. clear about that in the beginning, okay? Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, I went to a school that was all white every Sunday and sometimes on Wednesday nights or Sunday evenings when we went to church. There were only white people in those pews. And so when I thought about who my neighbor is, it was, I only had pictures of white people in my, in my consciousness, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, that really shaped my understanding of what it meant to be human at that time, right? And I didn't think there was any, like I just, that was the white bubble I grew up with. And so when I was about 16, um, there had been already this process of, of, um, with international pressure and sanctions and um, and also the apartheid government not being able to kind of sustain <laughs> um, military power in that way, right? Um, you need so much money to sustain. Like if you're that smaller group of people trying to be a, like to, to rule um, when you're a minority, um, it just needs so much weaponry, right? And yes. money to sustain that. And, and, and it was, it couldn't sustain that. And so, um, Things were starting to get unbanned. Books got starting were starting to get unbanned. Um, people were starting to speak more openly. And I was about 16 when I walked into the library, the local library, and there was this turnstile of books, and it read, recently unbanned books. Hmm. And I was like, oh, Ooh, <laughs> let me lean in. <laughs> and, I, and I thought, well, this is a library. It's a safe place. How dangerous can that be? How dangerous can a book be? Mm. Wow. But the apartheid government had thought those books were so dangerous that they had banned them, right? So yes. dangerous. And so I picked up a book. Um, it was by a white author. But the way he talked about apartheid and the way he talked about the story that was unfolding, that was truly happening, it was like... Um, I saw with fresh eyes. It was like I was awakened to the true story. And for me, it was, it was a shattering. It was a shattering mm -hmm. of, oh, I am, who, who are we in the story? I had just gone to uh, Germany earlier in the summer. And uh, my dad had taken us to Dachau, to a, a concentration camp. And at the time, it was the first time I'd ever experienced how, you know, in my mind, how evil people could be to each other, mm. standing in that concentration camp um, and standing in the gas chambers. And I was 16 years old and I was like, how can people do this to each other? And then I came home yes. and I was reading this book and I was like, oh, we have been doing this yes. to people right here in South Africa. And so it was, I was, I felt very disillusioned, um, very disillusioned with my faith because, you know, the leaders in our churches, not that they, not that they overtly promoted apartheid or ever preached about apartheid. They were not allowed to talk about politics, but 
it the theology that sustained apartheid was created by my denomination, by the mm. Dutch Reformed Church. And it, to mm. be an Afrikaner person was to be uh, a Christian. It really was almost like it was went hand in hand. And yes. to be a Christian um, meant also to be Dutch Reformed. You know, I remember mm-hmm. just people kind of frowning upon if you're like from any other kind of denomination. And it was really just... You know, so that was sort of that context, and so it was shaped by an um, apartheid theology, and so very disillusioned with God and church, and with leadership who had been telling me this one story uh, with school, my teachers, and so, you know, people I loved, and I was like, but you, you haven't told me the full story. I had been studying history, and... We have not been studying the full history. We've been only studying it from this one perspective. So um, two years later, Nelson Mandela was released from prison, uh, not not far from where I lived. And so, you know, in 1994, I got to vote in that first democratic elections. And, um, you know, it was my first time voting, but it was also the first time that so many millions of people in South Africa got to vote. Hmm. Somebody like Desmond Tutu, got to vote for the first time mm-hmm. you know so you just you enter into that story and you're like oh this is this is big right this is big yeah. and what do I do with this um but I got a glimpse and a taste really of what I felt what what's what I sensed was how the world is meant to be that when we when things are right that day standing in that lineup waiting to vote It was like the sun was shining, women were singing. It was like we were held together as humanity, as as people together. Like we were really, truly belonging to each other. And and I know it was really only the the beginning of political freedom. Um, So much more needs to happen and has had to happen. But in that moment, it felt like a taste of heaven for me, like a taste Mm. of, of... this is what, what it's supposed to, to feel like. And I think when I left that, um, that voting booth that day and that sense of this is how we're, we're meant to walk together as humanity, I wanted to go look for that. I wanted more of that. And not that small, white, tight feeling that was still so in my soul. Yes. And so... Um, I, I went and, 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 and worked in Taiwan as a journalist. Um, and, um, and, and my really my life kind of took on a whole other journey from that time. I never planned to leave South Africa. I fell in love with a Canadian uh, one summer when I visited Vancouver. And then, um, you know, moved to Canada in, in 1999. And so um, then a whole other journey started unfolding of... Um, of just undoing this really peeling back what was that what was that whiteness that shaped me yeah and, there, and there how do i so undo much, that there's so much in that story Adelette, that i think we could preoccupy ourselves with the uh, you don't have to be uh pro apartheid to enable and support and be complicit with apartheid uh you, you don't have to be a um you don't have to be waving an apartheid flag to be serving at the apartheid God oh. is one of the things I heard you talk about as, as a Christian. Um, we have to actively oppose the forces of evil in the world. Otherwise, we're compromised and complicit in them. Yeah? 
Absolutely. Or and we, we benefit from it. We get swept up into it, right? You yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and I also think it's just interesting maybe the trajectory of you know, South Africa unbanning books and you being the kind of person who moves towards an unbanned book. <laughs> I love that. Like 16-year-old Italy, ooh, what's this about? And how even in our own country today, we think that uh, banning books by voices who aren't majority or uh, centered is is a good idea. But um, those those are perhaps topics for a different podcast. Um, I, guess, I guess so you, you have this awakening you read this book at 16, and then you have this, I love this sentence in your book, Idolette. You said, I, I had been on a quest for years to prove to the world how not racist I was. I think, I think this is the first step. You know, you know um, uh, psychologists tell us there are stages of grief. <laughs> yeah. I yes. think this is the first stage in like waking up to how bad racism is. Yeah. Um, and maybe just a personal anecdote before I, I let you speak on this. I, I remember 1994, I was a senior in high school. And I remember uh, when, up, when um, all, all the news about apartheid, quote, falling. And I remember feeling so thankful that I was not like those racist South Africans, right? And and I, I can imagine uh, it'll let, you know, some part of it'll let, or some South Africaner, visiting that German Holocaust place and saying, I thank God I'm not like these Germans who were so racist. It seems like we've got this innate desire to exonerate and justify ourselves by how not racist we are. And I want, I would love for you just to speak for a moment. Like what happened? How did you come to realize that that wasn't doing good work for you? I wasn't getting free. Right. I was still not getting free. It felt like, um, you know, I think there was a, there was a, it was a moment. There was one night we were, um, and I wasn't really cognitively aware that I was doing this, right? Like, you know, this is in retrospect, you know, like, um, when you kind of look at your life over the last 10 years, the the 10 years before, as I've been, um, at that point, um, leaning in, um, and I, you know, this book took, like, has taken 30 plus years to write, right? But there was, I think, moving to Canada, there was this very deep internal work that was being done. And then the first time um, I kind of set foot in, in in another part of Africa, like, it was like the gates creaked open for me. And I was like, how dare I? I didn't think I I, I deserved to to kind of set foot in, in another part of, of Africa because, you know, as an Afrikaner woman, I I didn't feel, feel like I deserved that. And yet there was like relationships were opening up. And so as relationships were opening up, um, because, you know, here I had lived in a global context. I had friends from around the world. But when I looked at my friendships in South Africa, they were still all white. And so I was like, mm. I'm 33 years old or something in Canada how can my friendships in South Africa still be all white? This is wrong. This is I, this is off. Like, I got to do something about this, right? And so that's when I started, like, really shifting where I was going and what I was doing. But because of that and because of those relationships then, 
I, I noticed this, this thing in me of wanting to prove almost like, and it, it wasn't conscious, right? It's like, but you're trying to do the right thing, right? You're trying mm. to do a good, you're trying to seek justice, right? And, um, and I just remember we sat around the table and it was like this, it was like this textbook white fragility moment where mm. somebody talked about uh, being racist and I burst into tears. Like I literally, because we like we were sitting around the table here. My friends were from around the world. We had friends visiting from South Africa, friends of color. They were sitting around the table, um, you know, and we were just like this a community. And yeah, and then again, like so, I my tears, and then all my friends were kind of like mm, looking after me, right? It was just like textbook, mm-hmm. and um, you know, and I and I also want to be careful about that whole language of white fragility because I think. Yes, I can name that moment as white fragility, but that is not where we stay. Like we have to build capacity to do this work, right? Yes. I see capacity as 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 part of that work. Um, anyway, so that moment really was a very clear indicator for me, like how hard I was trying to work to be a good white Christian kind of thing, right? And yes. and then sitting at the Festival of Faith and Writing in Grand Rapids, um, and hearing the Reverend. Kelly Brown Douglas talk and she was quoting a friend and she was saying the only thing white people can ever be are recovering racists and when she said that language it was like did she really just say this Hmm. and then I was like yes that's it that's what I needed to hear and that was the moment of rock bottom for me right like that moment of such sobriety like okay, this is it. I am a recovering racist. This is where I, that's the rock bottom I have to start from. And once I acknowledge that and really just stood in that and the, the, the truth of that, the, not the, the ugly truth of that, right? It was like, oh, I don't have to prove this anymore. I, this is it, right? And so, now I can do the work of reclaiming, of, of undoing, of dismantling. Like it just, it just was, you know, it was another place in the story. And, and none of this is linear, right? Like none of this undoing and of this becoming is linear. It, it was just such a, it was a gift from her, honestly. Um, and so I just, that, yeah, I received it. I went, I went home and I just really started being in that. And I know that, like, you know, saying I'm a recovering racist, that's not where we end, right? So I, we really remove, we move and um, reclaim our humanity in this, right? But there, there, that was a very necessary moment for me to do that. Yeah, yeah. This was, this was a, a big shift for me, Italet. I feel like that you're, you're using some recovery um, world language to describe maybe the impact things like white supremacy have on us and have on the people we love. Um, words like sobriety and recovery. Hmm. And I, I think it, this, I mean, there's a reason why step one is not, not convincing other people you're not an alcoholic, but it's, yeah. it's just naming that you are. Um, and, and I think that, that there's something breaks free, something breaks loose because you use the word freedom like it's a move towards freedom, not to live in denial and self-justification, but to live in sort of this ruthless accounting or reckoning with what's real 
and then learning to deal with it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of dealing with <laughs> we it. We just pause there, right? He's like, mm, yeah. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I, th- this is part of the waking up, I think. So you, you structure your book as a, as a progression um, of sort of steps that, that you've taken along your journey. And you, you bring in a lot of, um, you bring in a lot of, of voices that are uh, like black, indigenous, people of color voices who have been your mothers and fathers that have led you along the way. Um, and you acknowledge right in the beginning how complex it is to be a white recovering racist writing a book about dismantling white supremacy, right? And 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 the difficulty, and yes. uh, we talked about this a little before we hit record, speaking up without speaking over um, or leading without eclipsing voices that have been doing this work for a long time, or, you know, God forbid, not colonizing <sighs> the anti-racist movement. Oh my word, um, yes. Right? And I know <laughs> yes. that's like near and dear to your heart, Idolette. Uh, and I, yeah. I, you know, I'm not the... The, I'm not the best uh, accounting for this, but it seems like your book, you were, you're able to do work that avoids those things. And I, I guess I want to ask, how? How do we do this work that only we can do as white people in a way that doesn't reinforce the hegemony of white supremacy? Yeah, I really had to wrestle with that, right? Do Did we really need a book by a white woman about race? And, um, mm. you know, yeah, I wrestled for a long time. And, you know, I also knew the minute, you know, if I get this book contract, somebody else is not getting that, right? Black, indigenous, woman of color, probably not getting a book contract, but I'm getting this, right? And so, again, wrestling with that. And then, you know, coming to some of the, the financial repercussions of that too, but we can talk about that later, but um, if you want to. Um, but the, I think, and even the minute, <laughs> the minute I write and start telling my story, I center myself in the story, right? And so, okay, how do you really walk that line? And so I think for me, the piece that I came to, is just, it was just very clear that this book is to white people. Like, this is where I could speak. I, you know, I speak in this circle of, okay, this is a moment in history. We have done irreparable harm, as Kathy Kong talks about. Um, and we have to reckon with this past, right? And how do we do this? And I, I realized I had some questions that I was not getting answers from in some of the, in, 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 in the books that I was reading. Like, and I had been on a quest, right? Like for years to, to read about how do I undo this in my soul, right? Um, and looking for voices, looking for wisdom, looking for clarity and freedom, right? Like that liberation. And, and I'm still like, I would hold up um, and I would sit with these books and things would, st- would happen within myself or, or the spirit would nudge me towards something that was very intimate and personal, right? So it was my own journey. And so I always, you know, I always say we have to center the voices of black, indigenous, people of color, right? Um, in, the, in the large story of race, those are the voices that need to be centered. Absolutely. This book 
is for those of us who want to have a side conversation. We want to meet in the basement. We want to sit um, like on, on, at a picnic table in the grass, in the sun, and just kind of talk about, okay, what do I do with this? I have done this, or I am thinking about this. I'm wrestling with this. What can I do? Or how do I untangle this? Um, so it's that's really where the book is positioned. And, and I think the other piece that became really clear for me um, was just, and, and, and I really, and I got this language from Gloria Steinem, and um, it was like, the idea of when you are the person with the most power in the room, then you need to speak up. But if you look around the table or around the room, and um, you're the person with the, uh, when you're the person, my apologies, when you're the person with the least power in the room, you need to speak more, and listen less. And when you are the person with the most power in the room, you need to speak less and listen more. Hmm. So I'm constantly evaluating, okay, here's we're in the room. Who am I in this room? Where does power move in this room? And I learned that, and I've learned that question from Reverend Renee August. Where, where, where is the power moving in this room? And so paying really attention to the movement of power, right? And so once I can see that, that and I can and I'm aware of that, um, it becomes pretty simple, really, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so to to yeah, to pay attention to that. Who am I in this room? Who else is in the room? And then also asking who is not in the room and why are they not in the room? Yes. Right? Yes. Hi, my name is Michelle Arndt, and I'm a church planter and pastor in rural Wisconsin near the outer edges of the Twin Cities. Recently, I reflected on my time in the Gravity Cohort five years ago and the way it opened up space in me to see how for much of my Christian life, my words and works remained disconnected from the ways of Jesus because I lacked the ability to name my actual desires and how they played out in my real world. Gravity gave me the tools to excavate things like the way hidden desires for power and popularity prevent me from loving others well. It taught me the language of noticing through Kairos moments in everyday life that are far better at telling the truth about what I actually believe about Jesus and myself than 10 Bible studies ever could. Gravity is not about information, it's about transformation. I continue to reach regularly for the things that I've learned in Gravity in my everyday life and relationships as a person and a pastor. Those who know me best have heard me say repeatedly, gravity has been the single most transformative spiritual experience I've had thus far in my life as a follower of Jesus. If you want to clear the clutter of Christian ideas and move into living in the ways of Jesus, gravity is for you. To find out more about Gravity Leadership Academy, visit gravityleadership.com academy. This, since this is a side conversation and we're safely in the basement and no one else is listening, um, it, do you know how hard it is for white men in America to see power? Mm. Like to see how power works, to see who has power, to see what it does, to see who doesn't have power, how they're comporting or shape-shifting or um, code-switching in order to signal that they are, quote, not a threat to power or cool with the power being wielded. I guess that's a rhetorical question. We stink at it. We are <laughs> awful at seeing power. I, I guess then maybe one of the things you do in your book, maybe you can help us a lot, is you talk about what is whiteness. Yeah. Um, this this trips people up 
because I think they see talk about whiteness as hating white people, or sometimes people um, think, well, it's just reverse racism, um, or that it's uh, signaling or signifying that if you're white, you can't have um, difficult circumstances or have uh, a lack of privilege. But but you do a really simple, good job of of describing what is whiteness and why do we have to do something about it as white people? Would you would you help double click on that for us and help us understand that better? I'm trying to remember. Can you? Can, where are you looking at that? Oh, yes. <laughs> you know. You, you know. I, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not trying to be facetious, but I. You know. Um. I think some of those things I want to be so careful about because I want to. I, I. I use. I and I. I I consulted the voices of like um, Dr. Willie James Jennings, right? Or yes. other people who were describing whiteness, right? And so I don't want to misquote somebody. <laughs> so if so you have it me, in front of you, like you go for can it. I, yeah, can I throw out this quote then that you yeah. use from, um, yeah. that you use from um, Willie James Jennings? Uh, you say, my use of the term whiteness, this is Willie James Jennings. My use of the term whiteness does not refer to people of European descent but to a way of being in the world and seeing the world that forms cognitive and affective structures able to seduce people into its habitation and its meaning making. Um, which I think yeah. is a, uh, is a, it evokes a lot of questions and it, okay. it kind of stirs the imagination to say, okay, so what does that look like? So maybe, maybe training on, Dr. Jennings' definition here, which I think is brilliant, which you quote in your book. Yeah. Yep. Uh, what are some of those habits of seeing and being hmm. that we want to name as whiteness? Right. Well, you know, you just named it. You said white men, right? And I think, you know, for me, I didn't see it. I didn't see it until my eyes were open to that, until I mm -hmm. had a bit of an awakening, right? Um, there's often, there's things that happen and I'm like, Oh, I mean, the other day I was talking to a friend, um, she's a Cosa poet, and, and I was talking about joy, right? And I was, you know, she's a very joyful person. And, and you know, I was saying, oh, yeah, I, I appreciate so much that we can come together and talk and then the, the sense of joy that we share. And, 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 um, and she was talking about, yeah, well, joy is shaped in suffering. And I was like, oh, yes, mm. right? Um, you know, like, for me, that was a moment of whiteness that was like, oh, okay. And that's last week, right? I cannot assume that I know, kind of, the, that I come to the circle knowing, like the larger circle, right? I always am a posture of a learner, right? And that kind of that moment, like, all right, your story is, is a, yes, there's joy, but there's also, am I acknowledging the fact how you know, people have suffered. And, um, hmm. yeah, so there's, it's just their constant interrogation, really, for me, holding up a mirror. And, and you know, I, and I think the, the, I do it when looking at quotes, like, um, you know, looking at reading books, listening to people, um, hmm. and you're like, oh, that bumps up against something in here right now, right? Yeah. And why is that bumping up? And, like, oh, okay, let me go do that work. Let me go in the quiet of my room and go and sit with that. Why mm. does this feel like, why do I want to be defensive about this, right? Yeah, yeah. That Even that. Even the need to learn how to ask that question 
Mm-hmm. I think is if we could flip that question around and say, why do we have to learn how to ask that question? Is because one of the benefits of being white, one of the promises whiteness gives us is that we won't have to be uncomfortable about our skin mm-hmm. color right. in any situation. Yeah. yeah. Whiteness, whiteness is about comfortability in our skin and supremacy in our skin. And so I think, I think it's important to name these things because, gosh, uh, one of the metaphors Ben and I have used in the past is like when the wind's at your back 20 miles an hour and you're riding your bike, you don't know there's wind. Right. You just think, I am crushing this bike ride, mm-hmm. right? And it's important. We had to turn the bike around, be with people riding in the other direction in order to, to understand how whiteness works. And I think that's a really keen artifact that you get in your book. So thank you about that or or walk with people who don't have a bike there you go right try to walk into that wind and let people fly past you yes Mm -hmm. exactly so one of the one of the stories we that i've um i've learned um from from ones who are doing restitution work is like you know white whiteness is stolen the bicycle you know, so often we're the ones who've stolen the bicycle and we're like, ah, well, I've got this bicycle and, you know, I've apologized, but, you know, you still don't have a bicycle, but can we be friends? Can we, can this be okay mm-hmm. between us? <laughs> and I'm still going to ride my bicycle and you're still going to have to deal with all the consequences um, um, of, of me taking your bicycle. But I, I, I kind of want you to just forgive me and, and that's not okay, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to deal with the fact that we've stolen so many bicycles and whether that is like the actual bicycle or, you know, it's, it can be, you know, just the ways that we have taken. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. This is a part of your book. You had a number of quotes. Um, it'll let, it, uh, I, it was really good for me to hear at the beginning that it took you decades to write this book because you have so many good quotes. I'm like, how did she <laughs> find all these great quotes for this book? Uh, seriously, I was underlining almost all of them. Oh. One of the, one of the, and they're from other people you've learned from. And um, one of the ones that, that there were a number that just stopped me short. I had to put the book down and, you know, kind of blink off in the distance. And I realized if I, if I keep reading, I'll miss, I'll miss what this, what these words want to do in my life. One of those quotes was this from 1492 to 1914. European nations conquered or colonized more than 80% of the entire world. And you talk a lot about colonization in this book, about, um, about taking land and taking bodies and doing whatever we can to claim it, right? Another one of those quotes from Mark Charles, you can't discover an occupied land. Yeah. But, but, but if, you're, if you have a colonial mindset, you can. Um, I wonder, so much you do in this book, we can't get it all today, but one of the things you do is you talk about the need for decolonization, which is a word I think many have heard about but from your perspective, like what have you learned about what is decolonizing? And, and how, if we, if we woke up tomorrow and said, you know what, I want to do this work, mm-hmm. how would we start? Hear different stories, change your perspective, right? So um, Reverend Dr. Cheryl Bayer talks about that. For her, that was just a simple, a very simple definition of decolonization. And I, when she said that, I was like, okay. Because sometimes we make it so big, right? Um, 
And I think it means we have to sit at the feet. We have to sit in circles. We have to show up and listen where people are telling different stories. And sometimes that feels uncomfortable. And it's exactly like those are invitations to hold it up as a mirror, right? Okay. Um, And so hearing different stories and then changing your mind around that. You're like, Hmm. okay. Um, And I think the other piece around that is decentering, right? This really decentering yourself kind of in this large story, right? Where do you take your body? Where do you take... um, yourself where do you which spaces do you show up right when I really had to um when I noticed that all my friends in South Africa at the time and I was 33 like how we're still white I'm like I gotta show up in different spaces I gotta do something very intentionally right but Mm. the difference again right is is I showed up but I didn't I I there was this yeah, that spirit of colonization where you just want to take, you just want to yeah. bust through. You were like, oh, I see all this beauty, all this beauty. How can I make it mine? Or mm. I see this person and I was like, and in their sense of, oh, I just want to be their friend. And you just kind of show up and you're just like, ah, you're going to be my friend. Yeah, no, right? The gentleness, the humility of showing up in a space and allowing relationship to open up where it where it is meant to be, right? Where the spirit is moving and inviting this, this, this becoming, right? Um, yeah. So that I think that was that was huge. That's huge for me in the story. And then and then looking at where have I, what stories have I believed about um, about what it means to be human in the world, right? Or or even just how I am, like what stories did I grow up hearing? And I think there was one story that I that I talk about. Um, about the day of the vow, that was a big decolonization journey for me uh, to really integrate this, interrogate the story where um, <clears throat> in, um, it, was, it was a part of the Afrikaner history. And I think this is really where our exceptionalism was formed and shaped. Um, it was part of this, this journey of, um, of white people moving into the colonies in South Africa and having this sense of divine mission, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> um, does that sound familiar, right? Mm-hmm. Um, right? And came to a part in northern, um, like in the northern parts of South Africa and near the Durban kind of area, I guess we would call it now, KwaZulu Natal. And um, the... The, the, the people of the time, they were called Burim, um, like, like and, uh, literally translated, it's farmers. It was really meant as Afrikaner people, right? People who speak Afrikaans and are white. And uh, um, and they came and there was this battle with Zulu people. And the Afrikaners fasted and they prayed and they said, God, if you give us this victory, we will commemorate this day as a holy day, as a day in which we honor that you showed up for us and that mm. we are your people, <laughs> well, right? And, mm. um, and, the, and the, the battle was called the Battle of Blood River because thousands of Zulu people died mm. and blood was shed and only, uh, I think there was, they say, three Afrikaner people were, were injured or something like that. Like I'm, I'm trying to remember that, but, um, 
But the idea was that God was on the side of the Afrikaner people, right? And how dangerous is that? Yeah. And those ideas then that moved through our culture. And so here I was, a, a young girl um, in school. And every December, December 16, we commemorated and we honored that day as, as a Sunday, as a holy day, and the day that mm. God remembered the Afrikaner people. And so um, that was a decolonization journey. That was a day mm. to say, oh, no. We have done horrible things. This is this was a genocide. This was a horrible thing that we'd done, right? Mm-hmm. We had slaughtered th- thousands of people, and I need to stand next to my Zulu sister. And um, how do we do that? And so I had to reckon with that. And you know, I did that in the privacy of my of my of my of my room, but um, just <laughs> repenting before God for this story that we believe that I believed, and. Um, you know, like that is so shaped and so it was so deep in culture. But I heard a different story. And then when I stood next to my Zulu sister, I was like, I had to I had to look at, oh, what is this history that we believe? That I've believed that and you you don't interrogate, it just kinda of just becomes part of your consciousness. But yeah. when you start interrogating that, like, oh, I have to turn away from this. It's not just enough for me to say, okay, we're not I'm not commemorating the day, but I have to turn away, and I needed to repent for that, on yeah. in my own private um, home, right, and yeah. write something different and do something different about that. So yeah, looking at the ways, how is my culture being shaped, and um, by that. Yeah, yeah, you're you're naming something that you keep coming back to through throughout your book and and you even said it on this podcast and you 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 write it in the book is that we need to build our capacity for this work that we don't have the resiliency and the fortitude and the courage and the humility and the patience for the long hmm. slow overthrow of the kingdom of white supremacy um <sighs> Yes, and I, it strikes me, right? It strikes yeah. me that this is the promise of 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 colonialism is that we can come and conquer and dominate and extract and um, profit, um, and and that may seem like hard work, but uh, in comparison to dismantling this apparatus, it's uh, it takes way less uh, character and fortitude. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Oof. Oh, yeah. We are running out of time, and I, I've asked all these questions, and Ben has just been sitting here, like <laughs> politely, like letting me jabber on. Ben, I want you to get in here because uh, you know it's all good. I'm I'm learning a lot, so I appreciate this, uh, Italette. Um, maybe maybe one final question um, to kind of finish finish this out. Um, you you talk a bit at the end about. Um, the need to use power for good. Mm. And we've talked, you know, a bit about that dynamic of, you know, like having the side conversation and talking as white people. And and we do as white people still carry, um, you know, globally, but especially in um, here in North America, where we all live now, um, we do kind of carry this um, hidden, uh, oftentimes power uh, with us. And you talk about needing to use that power for good. But I wonder if you could share with us, I think... Uh, the way that a lot of people interpret that or hear that phrase 
like we've gotten power wrong, you know, we've gotten good wrong, all of our, you know, oftentimes good intentions of white people, we end up kind of making things worse uh, when we try to, you know, do something that we would conceive of as using our power for good. Um, you know, and I'm thinking about the famous kind of Lord of the Rings, uh, you know, kind of Boromir's, I don't know if you're familiar with Lord of the Rings, but, you know, Boromir's desire to use the ring of power, um, you know, to, to do good, you know, that kind of a thing. So I, I wonder um, if you could just nuance that for us a little bit. What, what words of courage or hope or what have you learned about how to do that uh, in such a way that we don't end up sort of inadvertently uh, making things worse or kind of clumsily? Yeah, does that, does that, make, does that question make sense? Well, I'll do my best. <laughs> I yeah, think yeah. So, I mean, right? just, I yeah, think so. Yeah. What, what what have you learned about using <laughs> yeah. power for good? I guess is right. the short way of ask, asking. I think because I'm trying to unlearn the ways of of um, hierarchical power, right, and the mm. use of hierarchical power and power for dominance. Mm. Um, I really try and listen first and follow the leadership of Black, Indigenous, and people of color, right? Yeah. When it comes to movements of, 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 of response, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but there are times when, you know, we can, we, can, we can be the person in the room who speaks up, mm-hmm. right? When I see, okay, it's a very white room here. Something is going on here that shouldn't be going on. Then we can speak up. They were like, "Excuse me, right?" And I've had I've had to do that, and I've well, you know, I I've done it because I I I just I don't want to be in in spaces or structures that that perpetuate this whiteness, right? Yeah. Um, and and it can be so um, yeah, it can be so subtle, right? But yeah. when you have eyes to see it, then to speak up for that, right? But, and again, is really interrogate your motive. Like, why am I speaking up? Mm-hmm. Right? Is this because I want to be a hero in the story? Right? right? Wanna, is this really about me? Is this my ego mm-hmm. really wanting to do this? Or is this really a humble moment where I can, I can do something, right? I have mm-hmm. power in this room. Can I use it, right? So... Mm-hmm. I think you and I, we just have to be honest about our motives every time, right? How do I show up in this space? Even when I ask a question, even if I show up in a comment, right? What is my motive? Is this an ego? Is this an ego move, right? Or is this really out of humility? And do I feel a really sense of prompting or a nudge or, you know, is this my my work to do, right? I think to ask that question, is this mine to do? Is this for me? Mm And I think that will, that helps. That really helps guide yeah. me. Yeah. So I'm connecting that with, um, I'm connecting that with what you mentioned earlier. It's almost a, a, a way of, you, you have to learn to see power and how it moves in a room, as you said, in order to understand how your own power uh, can actually, you can actually use your own power to subvert the power of whiteness in a space. Yeah. Or if you can't see your own power, if you can't understand how, how whiteness works, almost inevitably you'll end up using your own power, you know, to sort of like reify the power of, you know, of white supremacy. Um, and so right. I, I'm connecting that back to what you said earlier, just about learning to, learning to see power. Um, and, and also, as you said, connecting it to motives, but then also just listening, like learning, right. 
learning the ways that um, if I do have power in a space, uh, maybe one of the best ways to use it is to like uh, is to allow someone else to speak, right? Is to listen. Right. Um, and right. then if we do make a mistake, there's further listening, right? You know, that to, to say, because we can't always understand our own motives ahead of time. And so right. if we do make a mistake, um, just listening yeah. to the people that we've offended perhaps and saying, right. oh, you're, yeah, you're right. Yeah. I think that's true. And uh, I'm going to I'm going to try to do better next time. Right. Yeah, I think it matters that we ask that really ask the questions also, like who's missing, who is in the room and who's not in the room. Yeah. Right. I think that yeah. also helps. Right. Um, and yeah, just to really pay attention to, I think that, um, that, that who is missing, whose voices are missing. Yeah. Um, in, in, the, in the way that the room is set up or the table is set yeah. up, who is at the table and who is not at the table. Mm. Right. Really paying attention when I walk into a restaurant, who is at the table, yeah. who is serving, um, like just those kinds of things, right? Like paying attention to what is not there or who mm -hmm. are not there. I think yeah. that is such an part, important part or for me in this journey, right? Yeah. Um, and, and I just wanted to add this to like, you know, when you're saying we're messing up, right? I think we have to learn, I have to learn and I keep having to learn, how do I listen to anger? Mm. How do I hold space for pain, mm -hmm. right? Can we hear each other into healing? Can I do the work of capacity to hold space for the pain of others, mm. right? Yeah. Can I do my deep inner work yeah. so that That's when great. something Super like helpful. that happens, right? Yeah. When something yeah. like that happens, I have the capacity to hold space in love, Right, because this is love. Because we talk about we belong to each other. Right, we're connected to each other, and so love then compels us to hold space for that anger, for that grief, for that frustration. Right, and to in a place where I don't have to def to get defensive or you know, come in my whiteness. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Adelette, we've spoken often on this podcast that. <clears throat> we're committed as a community at Gravity, Ben and I and Christy, and many of most of our listeners to to opposing white supremacy, to dismantling this social architecture that's devastated and dehumanized so many people. But we've never done it before. Uh, you know, on, you know, some of us have master's degrees in uh, all kinds of things, and we are very competent, but um, we don't have much experience in this, and I've often longed, as Paul says, you have 10,000 teachers, but not many parents, and I became mm -hmm. your parent. And I feel like um, you, I know you have mothers and fathers you've learned from, but you are a surrogate mother to us, and you are perhaps um, parenting us in ways of how to, how to be white and how to do something about whiteness um, that that seeks to bring justice and shalom and peace in the world. So thank you for this work. Uh, and thank you, not just for the book, but thank you for the, the life and the decades that birthed this book. Thank you. Thank you so much. We're in this together, right? Amen. Amen. Will you, I know I read it at the beginning, but will you, will you plug your pluggables? Will you tell us about she loves community and all these dangerous <laughs> women that hang out conspiring yeah. for uh, scandalous kingdom justice? <laughs> 
I love it. Yeah, sheloveswagazine.com. Check that out. And dangerouswoman.org. And you can find me at idelette.com, I-D-E-L-E-T-T-E.com. Yeah, we just, yeah, we'd love to continue this conversation. Come and hang out with us. Come and hang out with me. Like, let's have these communities of, like, circles of people meeting, in uh, you know, in circles of recovering races so we can do less harm, right? Yes. I, yeah, I would, I would, yeah, I would just love to see that. Amen. Us too. The book again. Recovering Racists, Dismantling White Supremacy and Reclaiming Our Humanity. Idolette, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, mm-hmm. let that be a lesson to you, Ben. Mm-hmm. Let that be a lesson to all of us, all of us white people. I think all of us need this lesson. Um, Idolette was wonderful and i'm not joking when i say that her book is vital crucial necessary um i actually felt i actually had to read it quickly because of some time crunches we're recording this right after holy week and uh you know it's a busy life in the time of my life it is a busy life and uh i actually felt guilty about how fast i had to read this book that's how good it was I felt a little bit of guilt. Mm. I'm confessing to you today, Ben. <laughs> well, you you are absolved, considering all the uh, you know considerations we uh, we have to the considerations we have to consider. Yeah, um, you're you're absolved. Myself. Yeah, thanks. It was great. Yeah, yeah, it's really really helpful. I I've all, I, I was uh, helped by her reflections. I think on yeah, just noticing how power works because I think it can oftentimes feel tricky. Uh, for white people to know, to know, like, when, when do I need to speak up? When is staying silent being complicit with the status Mm -hmm. quo? And Mm -hmm. when is speaking up, uh, centering myself Mm -hmm. when other voices maybe need to be centered? I think that's something that we're unpracticed in. Uh, and I think oftentimes it, it just sort of paralyzes, uh, us. And I think her yeah. her reflections were helpful uh, for me, in terms of just being able to see how power works uh, in in a room in a space, you know, um, and that and that leading us to maybe understanding how our own motivations are at work. Uh, and I think that can be helpful for us to discern, you know, when when our voice uh, is helpful and when it and when our ears are helpful, when our listening is helpful is more is perhaps more helpful. Yeah. Um, so that was a super helpful uh, part of that conversation for me. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I was reminded actually of a of a story um, uh, that I uh, that my mom told me uh, recently. I think I shared with this, this with you one time, where she was um, she was in a room uh, of white people, predominantly white people, and it was one of these uh, space. I you know. I can't remember the exact context, but somebody was speaking about, and they started like naming some of these tropes, uh, racist tropes, really, um, that, you know, obviously they probably didn't realize they were racist tropes, but kind of talking about uh, the problems in the black community. And, and basically kind of all these like issues, you know, in the black community that are, you know, demonstrably, dem- demonstrably the result of syst- years of systemic racism, but then they're trying to assign those to, you know, individual black people, you know, to say like, oh, this is the problem. 
anyway, so they were repeating some of these tropes. And uh, <laughs> my mom told me that she stood up in the middle of this room uh, and said, you know, basically like made some comment about the irony of a bunch of white people commenting on the problems in the black community or something mm. like that. So mm. anyway, I was just, uh, I thought of that when, when Italet was talking about, you know, the need to, to speak up, uh, especially if we are in a room, maybe perhaps predominantly uh, mm-hmm. of white people. Mm. And some of these, you know, some of these things are being, you know, maybe racist tropes are being bandied about unchallenged. Um, I don't know. I was just like, I was kind of proud of my mom for standing up and challenging. Yeah some of those things. I think that's an example, right? Of the simple ways that we can just say, like not let that stuff go. You know, we don't need to get super, I don't know, self-righteous about anything, but we can just say like, Hey, this, like that's a racist trope, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. um, or this is, a, this is maybe not something for us to be doing right now. So. Yeah. I've been experimenting with that kind of direct speech, <clears throat> you know, I think it's, yeah. I think part of I think part of whiteness, the way whiteness works in my life, is that I cannot be wrong, and that I cannot be publicly wrong. Um, and I think mm-hmm. we have there is there is an agreement that we won't we won't name white racism as a white person to other white people in public. We won't shame any white person mm-hmm. for being for operating in some sort of white supremacy in front of other people. And if you don't think that's an arrangement or a rule, just try doing it. And see what happens. Yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah. Or, or, yeah. or even just naming, <laughs> naming something that would bring shame upon a white mm-hmm. person. Right? Mm-hmm. So I think that's different than, I mean, just depending on our you know, use of words, it's different from trying to shame a white person. Right? Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's, a, there's a difference, I think. But you're right. There is, a, there is I think, a an unspoken agreement among white people. I especially noticed this when I lived in the South, uh, not to throw them under the bus, but uh, I think it's more pronounced in, other, in some areas than it is in others. But I especially noticed it when, you know, there was this, this sort of like wink, wink, nod, nod, you know, I'm not racist, but, and then something was said that was racist. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know? Oh, oh yeah. Um, and yeah, to just speak up and challenge that and say, actually, I, actually, I think that is racist to say that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, this it happened just sort to me, of, the, you know, ruin, the, ruins the vibe. <laughs> it, uh, this just happened to me today, actually, uh, a, a similar kind of thing. Um, so um, just north of us, where we live, um, I've got family all over Indiana. We, we breed like rabbits, the Tebby family. And uh, one of my distant, distant cousins uh, is mm-hmm. running for sheriff in the county just north of me. Um, and so a friend of mine sent me, he ran like four or six years ago. I don't know how often sheriffs run and he lost, but he's running again. Yeah, I think I've seen and those sheriffs. Uh, they've seen he, those signs. Yeah. Yeah. He, he sent me a, he sent me a Tebby for sheriff sign and it's got a little, uh, it's got a little like cartoon, like, like car written on it. That looks like a sheriff car out of the late 1960s. And so I thought it was silly looking. So I threw something up on uh, Facebook and just said, Hey, uh, it's that time of year again when, friends ask me if I'm running for sheriff. I'm not. My cousin north of, you know, our county is. And I've had two mm-hmm. different friends reach out yeah. to me and say, hey, this is really triggering for me. Hmm. Because of it's, the... It was triggering to, you yeah. know... To them because of... Uh, 
because they they don't experience safety and security from a sheriff. They experience danger and hostility from a sheriff. Their relationship to law enforcement. Hmm. Um, and how me making a joke about it wasn't funny to them. And I thought... Interesting. Yeah. One, one was private and one was public. And uh, mm-hmm. I think, I don't know, I think five years ago, I would have been like, come on, stop it. You know, it's, yeah. a, it's a sign. I would have argued with their trauma. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Right? Um, and right. I, I think... Tell them what yeah. they should and shouldn't get triggered by. Yeah, yeah and I just think that, uh, I don't know, I'm trying to learn how to make mistakes um, and be wrong. It act, you actually mm-hmm. have to learn how to be wrong. I'm trying to learn how to be wrong. So today was another opportunity for me to learn how to yeah. be wrong. Um, I'm sure tomorrow I'll give myself many more chances. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Anyway, Congratulations. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's good. Well, we got to get out of here. Yep. Ben, did I tell you that my dad's uh, computer... My, his his computer, his password, his computer got hacked, so he had to change his password. No, I haven't heard that. And I asked him what his password was, and he said, Mickey, Minnie, Goofy, Donald, Pluto, Huey, Lewis, Dewey, Dublin. It's a long password. I said, what kind of password is that, Dad? He said, well, it said I had to have eight characters and a capital. <laughs> yeah. Makes sense to me. I was like, Dad, you're you're good to go. Good to go. Those are eight characters <laughs> and a capital. All right. All See right. Ya. Well, we'll uh we'll catch you next time, listeners. Later. Peace. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. If you're finding it helpful, we'd love it if you tell your friends about it. Ratings and reviews online also help others find the podcast. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Joining our Gravity community is free. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox, as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles we found interesting or helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com slash join. Our show is produced by Ben Sternke and Matt Tebby. Aaron Sternkey edits and mixes the podcast, and you can check out his work at aaronsternkey.com. We'd love to hear from you. To record a question or comment for us, go to gravityleadership.com slash message and click the start record button. You can also email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. Catch you next time. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. 
every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.